Let me pray as we, uh, as we get started. Father God, thank you for the opportunity um, that we've been given um, to participate um, in people's lives and for that invitation. And Lord, we, um, you know, this is the busy season for me. We don't always get to control the timing of when people go through crises. And so, Lord, would your sustaining power um, grant us sensitivity and wisdom and compassion to be aware of those who are hurting around us. And Lord, um, I also recognize there are those of you here today who are hurting as well. And I pray for your compassion and wisdom to be manifest in your life today. God, we thank you for your love for us. Pray that you speak through this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm excited about the town hall meeting um, in two weeks because we'll be talking about how, how the different activities of our church tie together. And one of the things that I mentioned is one of the values of our church is raising up leaders. And what excites me about that is uh, Daniel Gillum, uh, Fred's son, preached last week, and I got to listen to his message, and it was fantastic. And I was super encouraged and inspired. And one of the things he said was, it's kind of messed up for me um, to give him Job <laughs> to preach on. Um, but there are, and there are few people that can do a great job with that text. And I thought he did a fabulous job. In fact, he gave kind of an overview. He, he kind of stole all the thunder from every for, every future message I'm going to give. But I just so appreciate that he's someone. So Fred the Gator is someone um, who's invested in me. And then I have um, kind of poured out and invested in him because we used to work together. Um, and then my sons, uh, he's poured into and invested in my sons when they were at South Valley. And this kind of this, so you kind of have this discipleship chain among these different generations. Um, and it is a tremendous value to me for what this church is meant to be about. And so that's what I hope to see um, in the future for Quicksilver is investing in generations of disciples um, and including biological generations, which, you know, Judy is doing right now. Um, that's my prayer. And I hope you can join me and being excited for that, and investing in that, and seeing the fruit of that. And so with that, um, I'm going to go into uh, the text. We're talking about the book of Job, and what I, one of my favorite lines from Daniel's message, and he tied it into the text so well, was how we are afraid of other people's pain. When you see someone who's in pain, uh, when, when we see someone who's in pain, we, it actually kind of scares us. We want some distance from it. And I think it is such a privilege to be able to actually get to know someone's pain, but also to get over that fear. And so what I wanted to do today is kind of give you an outline of Job 11 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Job chapter 11. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of give you an outline of what's happening um, in this passage. And if you have a hardcover Bible, it's perfect. It's before Psalms and Proverbs. Um, so toward the middle of your Bible, but then go like left. <laughs> go left <clears throat> and you'll get to it. It's before Psalms and Proverbs. And what I, what I want to say as we get into this text is, first of all, my definition of poetry, and it's from a seminary professor, I think I said poetry is a form of dense and heightened emotional expression. Poetry is a, is a dense and heightened um, form of emotional expression. I want to um, go back on that a little bit, or let me put it another way. I want to expand that definition somewhat. I was talking to Fred the Gator about this, and, and he had listened to, he's been following along the series, and we, we meet together to talk about um, our sermons. Um, and what he said was, the definition he might give for poetry is it is a crafted object that makes a subjective experience public. 
Okay, let me say that one more time. A crafted object that makes a subjective experience public. Um, now, I'm going to take apart some of these definitions, and, and I hope you'll see it as we go through this. Um, but the craft of it, there is an artistry and a skill involved in poetry. Someone, I think a couple weeks ago when I was introducing the book, mentioned iambic pentameter, right, as something Shakespeare used. There is a craft in using iambic pentameter. There's a craft in rhyming. There's a craft in similes and haikus and limericks. That craft, that artistry is part of what is, is one element of poetry, but that's not the only element. It says a crafted object that makes a subjective experience public. So the purpose of poetry is to take something someone went through and make it accessible to everyone. Okay, that's the purpose of poetry. Because we all go through things in life, and often our temptation, probably the biggest temptation, the temptation of Job, is to think that he's the only person who's going through it. But the purpose of poetry, and the reason why Job uses so many images, there are so many images. In fact, it goes like from one image to another um, within a couple of verses. The purpose of those images is for to invite you in so that his experience would be public, accessible to you. Because one thing I mentioned earlier was I like I like reading poetry from people that I know because it helps me to get to know them better. But in a sense, you don't have to have that. The whole purpose of poetry is so that you can get to know something universal, okay? So that you can access something about God or about yourself from the poem. That's the purpose of it. It's not just about getting to know another person. It's about knowing God and knowing yourself. That's what a what, that's what a masterpiece poem does, and that's what I hope you see as we read. Um, in Job. Okay, so let me read the first six verses just to give you a sense of um, how it starts out. Now, um, the book of Job is organized in kind of these cycles. You have one of Job's friends speaking, um, and then you have Job's response. Okay, and here we have Zophar speaking, and then we have Job, and Zophar is one of Job's three friends, and then Job responds. So this is how it goes. <clears throat> Job 11, verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, should a multitude of words go and answered? And a man full of talk be judged right. Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Okay, so this is a poem. Verses two through six is a poem, and let me just give you some things to look at as far as uh, as far as patterns or the way Hebrew poetry works. And I know this is a review. Um, you look at verse two: "Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and, and a man full of talk be be judged right?" Um, that you see is a rhyme, and it's a rhyme of ideas, right? That's called parallelism. So, should a multitude of words go unanswered? That rhymes with "a man full of talk be judged right." Those go together. And when par with parallelism, it's not just a rhyming ideas. It can also intensify ideas, okay? So, for instance, in verse 3, it says, Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? Okay, so first off, it says, Should your babble silence men? People, you're talking is going to silence other people, but look, when you, when you say things, someone needs to put you in your place. You need to be shamed. And at the very end, in verse 6, and this is the end of the stanza, it says, Know then that God exacts of you, less than your guilt deserves. So what Zophar is saying is God is merciful. God, God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And so I want you to pay attention because I'm, I'm going to go with the way the 
um, our English translations separate this poem into stanzas, okay? Stanzas is a paragraph. So you have a stanza from verses 1 through 6, and then you have a stanza from verses 7 through 12, and then 13 through 20. So you have three stanzas for Zophar's response. And then Job, in verses 12 through 14, there are seven stanzas, okay? I want you to try to count. There's seven stanzas there, 12, 1 through 6, 7 through 25. That's two in chapter 12, two in chapter 13, and then chapter 14 has three stanzas. And I'm going to tell you why this is important because we're going to talk about later, we're going to talk about another feature of poetry, and that's chiasm. Who's heard of chiasm before? Anybody hear chiasm? Okay, most of you. So chiasm is this uh, kind of sandwich structure, right, where the beginning sounds like the end, and then if you have B, which is second, then you have a B prime, right, um, toward the end, and then you have a center. And that center is what is most um, kind of valuable or what, what wants to be emphasized the most. And so we're going to kind of look at that chiastic structure even within this uh, response that Job gives. And we're all, and chiasms can occur at all different levels. Okay, so my structure for today um, the points I want to give is, number one, that Zophar's assumptions about God reveal his pride. That's the first point. And that second, my, the second point is that Job's observations about God reveal his pain. And then lastly, where I want to end in terms of Job is Job's imagination of God ultimately reveals hope and resurrection. Actually, it's both. It's hope and resurrection and then despair in death. Okay, and the title of today's message is Hope Fragmented, or Hope in Fragments, because what we're going to see is that Job has this fragmented picture of what God is like. Now, um, let me first talk about Zophar. And what I'd have you notice about Zophar is it's immediately evident. Um, well, number one, I would ob observe that what Zophar says about God is true. He's making true statements about God. So in verse 6, for example, like I mentioned, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. That is absolutely true. God does exact of us less than our guilt deserves because we deserve death. We deserve the absolute worst because of our sin, because of our weakness, because of our depravity. And then in 7 through 12, it transitions, and it says, can you find out the deep things of God? And you have this repetition. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Right? And, it, and it talks about what it means to seek God's wisdom. Okay? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Verse 8. Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? And yet there's an irony here in uh, Zophar talking about how difficult it is to find wisdom. Because the irony is in, the verse, in verse 13, <laughs> he tells you exactly how you can know God. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. So at one, on, on the second stanza, Zophar is saying, hey, look, you can't really know God's wisdom. And then the next part, he says, well, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to know, God. Okay? And the, the problem here is that Zophar is making incredible assumptions about Job. Right? He's making assumptions that he has this complete picture about who God is, and that God can just, if God would just address it, God should just speak and address Job's misunderstanding. And the first thing I'd comment on is that this is the theology of just desserts. And we all believe at some point that this is how the world operates. You know, for me, um, getting into UC Berkeley, I thought, you know what, I worked hard. You know, I got good grades. Um, I studied I was disciplined. Someone told me recently, like, you must have been really disciplined. And, and I thought, yeah, that's, um, 
that's a good story. Um, but I, it's the one I like to tell myself, right? I had discipline. I had hard work. It wasn't just about my intelligence. Um, and then, you know, my parents are here. My, my parents gave me this narrative, especially my dad. Actually, both of them, you know, how hard they worked. Um, my dad, when he was in Hong Kong, how hard he worked. Um, all, all of it was about hard work. You know, he walked up to up to, to up a hill both ways and the ways, way to school and back. And so all these different narratives that enforce this idea of hard work. And that's because when we experience something good, I think our first instinct is to praise ourselves, right? Is to think that this has something to, it has something to do with us. And what we're going to see is by the same token, when we see someone who doesn't have what we have or has experienced misfortune, one of our first instincts is to respond and think, well, they must not have worked hard enough. <laughs> they must not have applied themselves. Have you ever experienced hearing someone tell you about something or how they did it in a way that um, which was just completely wrong? <laughs> it was just completely off. Um, I know I have been on that end where, um, for instance, I remember a friend of mine um, giving me advice about camping. And the first thing they said, well, you know, when you go camping, do the tents, do they have a bottom? You know, do they have a bottom to keep like snakes from coming in? I'm like, yes, yes, of course they have a bottom. Um, and then this person gave me some advice about what I should do camping. And I just thought, you have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. You don't even know whether a tent has a bottom or, or not. I, I'm not going to listen to anything that you're saying. And I actually told them that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, e it's easy for us to think of moments where we have been the recipient of well-intentioned advice and people have no idea what they're talking about and they're, they're really speaking with a sense of pride. But I think it's also important as we read the book of Job that Job's friends also represent us. That Job's friends also represent me. I remember a time recently when I was counseling a couple um, and the wife had made some comments about, uh, uh, you know, some fear over um, vaccinating her, her baby, okay? They were, they were about to have a baby, and she had some fear about vaccinating. Um, and I just thought, I, I instantly had some very negative um, perceptions about being against vaccination or just having any fears of vaccination. Um, and I began to give some advice. I began giving advice about vaccination and why, you know, it's good and all these different things. And I know this is a, this is a controversial topic on many levels. Um, but I noticed that as I was speaking, um, her, um, and she was about to say something, but I noticed her mouth just went like this. <laughs> um, and then I noticed as I, and then I paused and I noticed she didn't, she didn't say a word. And it was one of those moments where I praised God. I was like, oh, the spirit of God is actually tuning me in that this person no longer can no longer hear me because I've been talking like I know what I'm talking about. And maybe I have no idea, or at least I am not in tune with her at all. And I stopped and just said, Hey, did I? Did I just miss you? <laughs> what, what, what happened? Um, and then she explained. She explained where she was coming from. And it had, it had a lot, it had, um, it had way more to do with other things besides just the science of vaccination, okay? It had, a, it had to do with so many, with uh, deeper emotions um, and fears um, and feeling alone and all these different aspects that I just had completely missed. And I'm so grateful that at that moment I could see that and like stop. But I, <laughs> the problem is I don't know how many moments that I've missed, Okay, and a lot of us, we don't know all the moments where we've missed, where someone has been, has felt shut down because we've said things that, you know, we just weren't aware, um, completely missed the person or said out of arrogance, um, even though well-intentioned, and we completely missed it. 
And that's Zophar. <laughs> that's Zophar. And how do we know that's Zophar? Well, and I'm going to transition to talking about Job. Um, and this idea of Job is that his observations about God reveal his pain. And this is how Job responds. And it's pretty harsh. This is what Job answers in chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. <laughs> and then he says, But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. And then I want to spend some time on this, this verse here, verse 5. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those who feet slip. And let me just finish the rest of the stanza. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure. Who can bring God in their hand? Okay, the first thing that Job is doing here is saying, you have no idea. Zophar, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Wisdom will die with you. And really, this entire book, the reason why the book of Job is considered wisdom literature, it's actually an argument about wisdom. It's an argument about wis what wisdom represents. And the theology that Job is challenging here is the theology of just desserts. Just desserts means you do something good and something good happens. And Job is saying, yes, that works most of the time, but it doesn't work for me. It has not worked for me. And it, not just that it hasn't worked for me, there's a sense that if it hasn't worked for me, that means it won't work for anyone. Because what is the purpose of poetry? To take a subjective experience and make it public. So Job is saying, look, what you think is just me as an exception, it might actually be truer than what we'd all like to believe. And that's where it says, the tents of robbers are at peace. These evil people have no problem, are not having any problems. Their life is good. And those who provoke God are secure, okay? The evil ones are doing well, who bring God in their hand. And the rest of, uh, the rest of this response is going to go into that. And so let me, just, let me just give you an image of what it's like when the theology of just deserts uh, falls apart. Okay, and let me first give an example of a, of a friend of mine. His name's Travis. He's a, he is also a pastor and was a seminary classmate. Um, tall, good-looking guy, fruitful ministry. Um, but one of the things that were extremely painful in his life is that he and his wife could not have kids, could not have children. And he had received all the advice about that to continue trying, um, to try all these different methods. Um, but his wife had some health issues, um, some serious health issues that eventually... Um, uh, I mean, she almost, lo she almost lost her life. And then as a result, um, they chose a path of adoption because they couldn't have biological children. And so um, he was recounting this to me a number of years ago and telling me how um, this whole struggle in having kids just led to disappointment um, in God, um, a feeling of loss, of pain when people brought it up. But through the midst of it, he... Um, I mean, and God didn't open up her womb, right? God didn't magically uh, do something. And he can, but he, didn't, he chose not to. And yet he was able to see the grace of God in the midst of it. But it came through this suffering, this struggle, this pain, and this loss. And in the end, what he realized is he had held on to this theology of just deserts. That means if you do good things, good things will happen. And he had held on to that so much, and that was the source of so much disappointment and loss and pain. And when he began to encounter God in the midst of the suffering, that's when he began to experience some freedom. We're not quite there yet 
in the book of Job. We're going to see fragments of that here. But let me give you another image for what that looks like. Okay, let me give you an image of what that feels like to be the theology of just desserts. It's like, uh, it's like when you take, um, I, don't, I don't take a lot of bubble baths, but I want you to imagine being in a bubble bath. Okay, I want you to imagine being in a bubble bath and it's hot right? The great thing about a bubble bath, I mean, a good bubble bath, all the times I've tried to take a bubble bath, okay, not recently, but, you know, all the times that I've tried to take a bubble bath, it's just not enough bubbles, because you just want kind of bubbles everywhere, and the also the hard part, once you get into bubbles, then the water's cold, because the worst thing is to be like in a lukewarm bath, so, so I want you to imagine being in this hot bubble bath, and then the experience of the, of the theology of just desserts failing you, it can happen a lot of different ways, and one of the ways it can happen, and this has happened to me in a tub, where there's like a slow leak in the tub, okay? And the slow leak, you don't notice it at first, but after like you're halfway through lathering, you're like, wow, like half of the water is gone and I'm cold. Like I'm cold now, okay? Um, and that experience of that kind of flowing out is probably similar in my life where, for instance, like this dream of wanting to plant a church I've had for like 12 or 13 years, but God has now granted but during those times of waiting, it just feels like a slow leak. Like, how did I deserve this? So that may, that may represent, for some of you, the theology of just desserts coming apart. But for others of you, it's multiple leaks at the same time, and then you're just left cold and shivering in the tub. And then for some of you, and this is, and maybe the fewest of you, for, but for a distinct minority, the outliers, those who have experienced what, what Job has experienced, it's like the bathtub splits apart <laughs> and you're left cold naked on the on this floor shivering wondering what just happened okay and that's job's experience and what job is countering to zophar is that you have not spoken at all you may be right and like you're observing hey look your bathtub broke <laughs> okay maybe there's something wrong with you but that's not helpful when you're cold and naked and shivering on the ground wondering what happened and that's, that's the place that Job is coming from. So Job's observations about God reveal his pain, and they also reveal the limitations of our wisdom. So I want to turn, um, turn to now kind of towards the end of 12. And in 13, which starts a new stanza, it says, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Let's just pause with that image. I just talked about the bathtub, right? If he withholds the waters, they dry up. So he's talking about um, drought. You know, we're, we're experiencing drought here in California. If he withholds the waters, they dry out. But if he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. And I, I believe in the Midwest, there were, there were floods this year, right? So it's either like, <laughs> it's either drought or it's flooding. That's God. Like he doesn't, he doesn't do like the perfect balance, right? And he brings both. He brings drought or he brings flood. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. Okay, so again, what, what's happening here is Job is saying, look, God is responsible for everything that happens, including the evil that's done in the world, because he looses the bonds of the kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. In 19, he leads away, he leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. Okay, and, and I could keep going, but the idea here is that God is the one who chooses 
who he has providence on, who gives providence to, who he helps, who he protects. And I think this, this idea is super important. And what we don't get to see that Daniel pointed out last week, what we don't get to see or what Job doesn't get to see, but we get to see as the reader is that there is a backstory that's invisible to Job. And that is Satan's role in this whole plot. Okay. All of the evil that's happening, Satan is at least partially responsible for. And I know some of you may have a disagreement whether or not this is uh, completely, you know, Satan or is completely God. Well, they are both valid because they're both stated in the text that Satan is responsible. And then also in the beginning, I think it's chapter two, it says, uh, God says to Satan, you incited me against Job, right? And yet both play this role in Job's suffering. And so there, it really isn't an easy answer to the causes of suffering, but it is undeniable in my mind, the way I interpret this text, because it talks about Satan's backstory, which is invisible to Job, that Satan has a role in any kind of suffering. Any kind of suffering that you experience on this earth has a connection with Satan, with the adversary, who wants to disprove us, who wants to show how selfish we are to God. And I think the beauty of what I see here about Job, and Daniel mentioned this last week as well, is that God allows us to misunderstand him. Job doesn't have the complete picture, and yet we have this gift in this book for Job wrestling and trying to figure out what is God like. And he makes these statements about God that aren't completely true, but they're mostly true because God actually does do these things. And so let me show you, let me show you one more way in which uh, Job's hopes are fragmented, but you'll see the gospel, and, and Fred gave me this word, you'll see the gospel in embryo, okay? The gospel in embryo. And I'm going to skip to um, chapter 14, okay? We're going to look at chapter 14. And at the beginning of 14, it says, Man who is born of women is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. Okay, and then as it goes on, it talks about uh, how fleeting man is. And then in verse 4, it says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Clean out of unclean. Interesting, right? There's kind of a moral imagery there. And then in verse 7, it says, For there is hope for a tree. If it is to be cut down, then it will sprout, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Okay? And then it transitions, and this is, uh, this is in verse 12. So a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. That's the underworld. That you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. Now this is int really interesting that he's talking, there's some, there's some themes going on here. Number one, there's transgression sealed up in a bag. So he's talking about forgiveness. There's forgiveness happening here. There's also this idea in 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? So there's two key ideas here. Number one, forgiveness for sin, forgiveness of sin and resurrection, okay? Those are two key aspects of what Jesus accomplished for us 
by his death and resurrection. And yet, I do, I do want to be careful because I want to preach the entire, what the entire book is saying. It says um, in verse 18, But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soul of earth. And then 19, right, the end of it. So you destroy the hope of man. <laughs> Basically he's saying, wouldn't it be great if we could continue living beyond the grave? Wouldn't it be great if transgressions could be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity? Oh, but that's not the way it is. <laughs> you destroy the hope of man. So it's like Job, is in his imagination, is going towards the gospel and says, yes, please forgiveness. Yes, please let me rise again. <sighs> but that's not the case. <laughs> he pulls back. And so you have this picture of Job. He's got this, he's got the, he's got God he sees God, he's almost there, but he can't quite get there. He sees God in these fragments. And it makes sense that he sees God in fragments because he's fragmented, okay? Job himself is fragmented. He's in pieces, and he sees God in pieces. And even these pieces, if you look back in chapter 13, um, and we talked about chiasm, okay? If you, took, if you take the seven stanzas of Job's response, the middle of those chiasms, this is the fourth stanza, it gets you around uh, verse 13 or so. And in verse 13, if you go to the middle of the stanza, about 20 or so, it says, Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face, withdraw your hand far from me, and not let dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. And this is the question that he wants to ask. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. What is he saying? He's like, look, if you have a problem with me, God, tell me what it is. If I've sinned against you, tell me what it is. And I think this is a great, this is an important and vital question that Job is asking. And this is kind of the center of what's happening in this book, right? Show me what I did wrong. And yet as Job gets toward the gospel, he recognizes no one can stand. We all need forgiveness and resurrection. So where does that leave us? How do we live this out? Well, I'm going to come to the same place that Daniel did um, last week, and probably each week we're going to come to the same place. If you have a fragmented perception of God, and I think in a lot of respects we all do, that even has some contradiction in it, where on one hand Job is asking, look, tell me what I did wrong, and the other hand is, is looking for forgiveness, and then on the third hand, okay, is like, well, maybe that's not all, none of it's true, because God destroys hope. There is no hope. If you have a fragmented perception of who God is, because God is taking you apart, there is a hope in coming to God, okay? There is a hope in being able to come to God, because that's what Job does. Job brings the fragmented parts of himself to God. He brings them all before God. In fact, that's what it says. Um, that's what I just read in verse 13, right? He says, I will hope in God. This, this is 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. That's 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. So even though he is experiencing despair, even though he doesn't see like there's any hope for what's going on, he's like, I've got nothing else. God, you are the only one. And so in our life group, and I encourage us as a congregation, um, I've asked people to start working on prayers, like to start working on poetry, 
right? That describes the pain and disappointment and this fragmented perception of God that I know Job has and that I think reflects our own fragmented perception. And it doesn't have to be made completely whole. What's important is that we bring those fragments to God himself because that's what Job did. And my encouragement for you, um, for all of us, is to bring our pain, our disappointment, and the contradictory ideas that we think of God, about God before him and surrender them up to him because he takes that. And then we know that there is a fulfillment, that Job was actually incomplete, that he was wrong, and that there is hope after death. There is life after death. And there is forgiveness because God does put our transgressions in a bag and seal them up. Church, let's pray together. Father God, thank you that in the midst of taking us apart. You allow us to take you apart, to see you in fragments. And Lord, would we bring those fragments, those incomplete pictures of who you are, that speak of the gospel yet can fall short? Would you, would you take them? Would you receive them? Would you listen as you're listening to Job throughout his story? Would you hear would you, in your timing, respond? Would we recognize that your wisdom does indeed lie beyond us? Would you manifest humility in us by your spirit? And Lord, we praise you that you complete this story through your son. That in you, there is resurrection. There is life beyond the grave. And there is forgiveness. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. And now we're going to do a time of communion. And the greeters will be passing out the elements. And I'd encourage you to participate as a follower of Jesus and as someone who finds meaning in this sacrament, in this ritual. And Joel, I'll grab one um, too. Thank you. Um, in this ritual. Um, and what this sacrament represents is uh, this idea that I just talked about, that it is possible for God to take all of our iniquity and to seal up in a bag and cover it, right? And as we participate in this, uh, in the grape juice, the grape juice represents the covering for our iniquity. Um, and the, the body, the, the brokenness of his body represents uh, death, and not just death, but also resurrection. So as you participate in um, eating of this wafer and in drinking of this cup, you are drinking to the death of Jesus and to the life that he gives, and then also to the covering um, that comes from his blood. This is his body, broken in our behalf. Let us partake together. This is his blood, shed in our behalf. Let us partake together. Let's pray. God, we have just uh, had a symbol of a meal together. And in, in having this meal, we recognize the body that was broken in our behalf and the blood that was shed, not only for us as individuals, but for your entire body. That is the church, the people that we are sitting next to, 
and the body of Christ universal, all followers of Jesus around the world. We thank you for that. We trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen.